Hi, everybody. I'm Matt. And I'm Steve. And this is Marvel Reread Club. We had a very good episode last time. Uh, it was an epically long episode. It was. We, we couldn't bring ourselves to cut much of anything out of it. It was great to have Steve Bunch on, and we hope to be able to do it again in the future. Uh, we're also trying to line up some other guests in the meantime. It seems to be a popular episode because uh, we get more downloads than usual here. So we want to do more stuff like that. Yes. So exciting. So, Steve, we've got another eight issues to discuss tonight. We'll probably split them up into two podcasts of four. I will start with Amazing Spider-Man number 17. That sounds like a good idea. Let's do it. All right, let's do it. So this is Amazing Spider-Man number 17, guest starring the Human Torch, plus the return of the Green Goblin, and what a return it is. So, you know, once again, Dicko and Lee not creating great new characters anymore. They are recombinating the characters they already have, which is... A shame, but it's also fine because they're doing a great job with it. And I think this is a very good issue. We've got Peter Parker in class. He's thinking about the Green Goblin. We cut the Green Goblin in his lair. He's thinking about Spider-Man. He's practicing destroying a Spider-Man dummy. I said last time that his broom collider would hang around for a while, but you said no, you thought it would not make it to his second appearance. You were right. The broom is long gone. He is on his more traditional goblin glider here. He continues to have the annoying piece of machinery that occludes his face when he <laughs> changes so that we don't get to see who he really is. They're continuing to have fun with that. We see the kids are hanging out and Flash Thompson is starting a Spider-Man fan club and is making a point of not inviting Peter Parker to join. And But then Liz stands up for Peter and insists that Peter be allowed to join. Peter then slips off, changes into Spider-Man, sees a bunch of outlandishly costumed people are robbing a bank and fleeing off in a helicopter. And he tries to stop him. And it turns out they were just shooting a movie. And he looks like a jerk for shutting down the people sitting in the movie. And J. Joan Jameson is, thinks this is hilarious. Peter is walking Petty home. But then they run into Flash and Liz. Of course, Betty, always wildly jealous of Liz. I think it is a shame that Betty used to be someone who worried about owing money to the mob, and now she just endlessly worries every issue about the blonde high school girl who likes her boyfriend, and I think it makes her a less interesting character, but oh well. Flash is going to go ahead and have the first meeting of the Spider-Man fan club Forest Hills chapter. Liz's father has reserved a hall for them. Betty wants Peter to take him, but of course, Peter is planning to show up as Spider-Man and can't do it, and Betty is pissed. We have to, we still have no idea who Green Goblin is, but we see him reading in the paper this is happening. He plans to show up too. So apparently Green Goblin's a Spider-Man fan because he's planning to show up for the Spider-Man fan club. Exactly. They go ahead and have the fan club meeting. Spider-Man does show up and shows off, but then Green Goblin is there and says, but from a darkened corner backstage, an electronically charged toy frog is propelled toward Spidey's swinging web. And so this is, I think, the only time we see Green Goblin using propelled toy frogs to do his dirty work. I I believe you are correct. I I do not. I mean, you know, watch, we'll be wrong. It'll show up like five more times or something like that. (laughs) uh, Yeah, I have no memory of the frog bombs. Within a couple of pages later, he's using pumpkin bombs, which he is more famous for. But he's briefly using frog bombs here. So then Spider-Man is fighting Green Goblin there at the fan club. Everybody thinks it's just a show, that they're just putting on a show here, and only Spider-Man knows it's real, and he's sort of happy to have them think it's just a show. Once again, there's the whole thing with glitter or sparkle weapons or something like yes. that. On, you know, and it's just like, what is it with the sparkle weapons? How does that 
intimidating. I don't get it. And here's the first. See how my goblin sparks start sparkling as soon as I press a button on my belt. Then we get classic sort of Weisinger era secret identity shenanigans where Liz is wondering, oh, why didn't Peter show up? And how come I never see Peter and Spider-Man at the same time? Which Spider-Man's solution to this, which is not an ideal solution, is to run off and change to Peter Parker and then appear all sweaty and out of breath going like, here I am, Liz, here I am. And of course, Betty sees this and she's not happy about it. And then he runs off again and changes to Peter Parker and goes to find Peter Parker. I think this would only really drive home to Liz that you never see them together. <laughs> like suddenly Spider-Man is fighting Green Goblin trying to save us all, suddenly has disappeared. Here's Peter. What Peter has suddenly disappeared. There's Spider-Man again. Like, <laughs> I don't think you're protecting your secret identity as much as you think you are here. And he's almost always the best at that of any of the Marvel heroes. <laughs> yes. But um, also, uh, uh, you said Weisinger. I, I've always thought it was Weisinger. Weisinger, Weisinger. I, even as the words were coming out of my mouth, I realized I didn't know how to pronounce it. So okay. I've only ever <laughs> seen it written Weisinger, Weisinger. Something like that. He was the editor on Superman back when Lois Lane had figured it all out and knew full well that Clark Kent was Superman. And then he had to go to ludicrous extremes to try to get her to ignore what she already knew, try to gaslight her to extreme degrees. So then the Human Torch, Johnny Storm, has also attended this meeting of the Spider-Man fan club. And he then sees that there are also crooks who are planning to rob the place. He turns into the Human Torch to go stop the crooks. This interferes between Spider-Man and Green Goblin. Spider-Man's like, why are you interfering in my battle? But then when Spider-Man disappears to become Peter Parker, Human Torch takes over the battle. They fight for a while. Then next thing you know, Spider-Man's back. They're having a big three-way battle. Unfortunately, then Spider-Man is once again overhearing something while he's fighting, and he overhears that his aunt has suffered a heart attack. Someone has called looking for Peter Parker because his aunt has suffered heart attacks. He just bolts, uh, runs off, leaves Human Torch to continue finding Green Goblin. Green Goblin says, I did it. I managed to reach the outside before his vision could return. My battle was a complete success. I don't know how it was a complete success. I thought he was trying to kill Spider-Man. Yeah. But he says, next time I fight Spider-Man, I'll leave him no avenue re- retreat. It will be the finish. Spider-Man rushes home, finds his poor aunt sick in the hospital, feels terrible, finds out that everybody thinks that Spider-Man is a big jerk for running away from the battle and abandoning everybody. He just feels awful. There are Venetian blinds, and we see his shadow with the Venetian blinds up against the wall as he says, why do I seem to hurt people no matter how I try not to? Is this the price I must always pay for being Spider-Man? So we have a classic downbeat Spider-Man Peter Parker ending. Yes. Um, yeah, I, I, I like this issue uh, where the Green Goblin is starting to come, starting to become a more interesting character. I think in his first appearance, it was... You know, that was not a uh, an impressive outing from him. Yes. And he's starting to take shape a little bit more. I find his goblin glider a lot more. It gives me a lot more to hang my suspension of disbelief. Yes, it is so much better. I love yes. I love the goblin glider so much more than the broomstick, yes. where you were just like, how on earth would you even sit on that thing? Much <laughs> less, how could it possibly propel you forward? How could it possibly keep you up in the air? Nothing makes yes. sense. But the goblin glider, even though it's ridiculous, you know, they were able to make the Goblin Guider work in the movie. Like they did a, Sam Raimi did a shockingly good job making the Goblin Guider work in the movie. I don't think he ever would have been able to make the broomstick work. No. One story I've heard, and I heard this since we had our discussion of the Green Goblin's first appearance, is that Stan Lee originally told Steve Ditko that, oh, I've got this new guy we want to do called the Green Goblin. And he's like, 
some kind of a, a revived mummy or something like that. Like he was some kind of a supernatural kind of something like that. And then uh. gave it to Steve Ditko and it came back as this. <laughs> now, I don't know how, you know, once again, that's one of the things where I, I don't know what the provenance of that uh, of that is whether there's something that's really verified or whether that's just sort of a rumor somebody had. One way or the other, they both seem to be on the same page at this point. They, it looks like they're starting to gel. You're saying Stanley and Steve Dicko are on the same page at this point? Yes, yes. They, they, they both seem to be clicking about, oh, okay, this is who this character is. This is how this yeah. character works. Rather than, if that story is true, Stan being like, oh, here's this thing with the supernatural mummy something something, and then gets him back. He's like, what the heck is this? This is like a gangster who's getting other, you know, like, right. what, what do I do with this? Um, which is sort of how I felt the other one, you know, it, it, let me put it this way. It seems plausible that that's what was going on in the previous issue. Yeah. Um, anyway, yeah, I, but, I, I like it, and I like a lot of the art in this issue, too. It, this is really kind of, uh, you know, Steve Ditko kind of at his... You know, from here through, what is it, issue 37 or whatever with the, uh, uh, with you know, lifting the machinery off his back. Yeah, 33. Um, basically, from about here to there, I think of just, in terms of just pure art, the, you know, just the artwork itself, not necessarily storytelling or anything else, the peak Ditko years. Um, yeah. And, and we're, we're there now, and it really looks nice. It really does. This is a really beautifully drawn issue, and it's just a beautifully bonded issue. Once again, as with the annual, you have a lot of talking. You know, if you just look at a page like page number six, there's just a tremendous amount of characterization. Yeah. And you've got this traditional sort of farce plot where, you know, everybody ends up in the same place and, you know, and there's mix ups, just embarrassing things going on. And, oh, how do I run around and try to try to make this all work and keep all the juggling balls in the air? I think it's just it's a tremendous amount of fun. Uh, so you were talking on uh, page six. I will point out that the picture of J. Jonah Jameson laughing on page six in the first panel is almost exactly a mirror image of a picture of J. Jonah Jameson in one of the first Sam Raimi movies laughing that's usually used yes. as a meme. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. I, 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 there's another site, uh, another uh, Facebook group I'm part of called Comic Swipes. And I put this up as a so-called swipe with Sam Raimi swiping from yeah. <laughs> Steve Ditko. And it really is. You put them side by side and it is nuts. <laughs> All right. Certainly Raimi was a fan of these issues. Yes. And uh, I also just wanted to say that uh, in terms of the art, page 19 is just gorgeous. That is some of the best fight scene art that I've seen Ditko do. Not so much the whole like interacting with the space and with the physical things there, but just in terms of pure like Kirby like stuff. You know, it's yeah. like this is this is um uh Ditko sort of showing that he can kind of play on that same plane with Kirby. Uh and it, it's just some fantastic action shots. Yeah. And uh, uh yeah I should say you can tell things are really bad on page 22 because we see two sets of Venetian blinds in two separate places, which are always <laughs> the Dicko's always sign of anguish. Anguish equals the shadow of Venetian blinds on the wall. All right. So uh, are, are we done with uh, with this issue? I'm all done. Okay, good. Excellent. Uh, so let us move on to Daredevil. So <laughs> uh, next issue is, I think, the one where Wally Wood comes in, in which case things will be much more interesting, at least. Don't know if it's a good match, but uh, we will definitely have a lot to talk about there. Here, though, we still have at least one more issue 
with art by Joe Orlando and Vince Coletta, a team that does not do each other any favors. And also Joe Orlando and Daredevil don't do each other any favors. So uh, we got one more of these. Now, the villain of this piece is called the Purple Man. Right away, they don't know what to call him because on the first page it says, menaced by the mystery of Kilgrave, the unbelievable Purple Man. And it's like, well, those are both perfectly good supervillain names, Kilgrave and the Purple Man. And right away, you can't decide which one to use. Um, and uh, for those of you who are more familiar with uh, Marvel from various screen media, Purple Man slash Kilgrave was the villain of the first season of Jessica Jones. Yes. He showed up there and was a really terribly creepy presence in that particular series. Yes, which I never saw. So my history with, you know, I wrote back when I was a would-be Hollywood screenwriter and had some illusions of success at one point and had a big time manager who was setting up my screenplays and was convinced that I was about to get rich. He convinced me I was about to get rich. I had a screenplay uh, that had an evil mind controlled villain in it. It looked like it was going to sell. It was like set up, whatever that means at various places. And then it never actually sold. I never made a cent off of it. And then the Jessica Jones series came out and I was like, I don't want to see this. <laughs> I, uh, I've had enough of mind control villains for the last a lifetime. So, uh, and I didn't want to feel like, you know, someone was stealing my thunder, even though obviously Purple Man predated my villain. And so I never saw that show and I had not been a fan of the Alias comic. So that was another reason I didn't watch it. I have a fraud history with mind control villains, but I like the Purple Man. I've always liked the Purple Man. I guess the Purple Man got his ultimate spotlight in Jessica Jones, but I think of the ultimate Purple Man storyline as being the Emperor Doom graphic novel in which he sort of played a small role in that Doctor Doom takes his powers and sort of takes over the world using the Purple Man's powers. I've just always liked the Purple Man. I think he's just really weird. So according to Brian Cronin, who was talking about this issue this week, he said that Purple Man was created by Jack Kirby, that Jack Kirby created the Purple Man and gave him essentially to Joe Orlando. And said, hey, I've come up with this interesting villain. Now, you would think if Kirby could come up with this interesting villain, he would use him in one of his own books. But no, you know, this is Brian Cronin. He's the lead blogger on Comics Should Be Good, which is a right. subset of comic book resources. But I don't know what he didn't, you know, cite any sources on that. But that was what he claimed. Interesting. I never heard that before. Okay. So anyway, we see this guy who's all purple walk into a bank tell the bank teller he wants all the money. The bank teller is like, oh, yes, of course, sir. And then just hands him all the money. So, so, yeah. so what, one thing I noticed is that uh, Purple Man has a really interesting looking face. Like his face yes, does. does not look like just sort of a stock face. He's got these big bushy eyebrows, but it also doesn't look cartoonish. You know, he, no. he just looks like a really distinctly somewhat odd looking. Well, someone who in real life wouldn't look odd. But he just looks like actually a real person's face. And so in a medium where you usually have just these stock hero faces and stock villain faces, it just it really jumps out at me. I wonder if he was based on a particular actor or person Joe Orlando knew or something. I don't know. It looks <laughs> like he's he's got a rather specific face. It seems to be specifically based on somebody. So I should point out that before before we see the Purple Man here, we see Daredevil still with his little backpack on the first page, um, which they will actually write out of the book. You would think they could have just quietly ushered that out, but no, he's still got his little backpack. <laughs> but yes, then we see Purple Man robbing a bank. And you know, this is sort of a standard scene you've got to have whenever you have a mind control villain is the just walk into a bank and have them for hand over their money scene. 
Yes. Uh, and I will point out that the uh, woman in the foreground on panel one, page two, is classic Vince Coletta, actually. She is. Um, yeah, her face is just, I, I, if you show me that and said, who drew this? I'd be like, I have no idea who penciled it, but it's clearly inked by Vince Coletta. <laughs> Probably redrawn by Vince Coletta. Like, that was his big thing, was just pretty girls' faces for the most part. Right. Okay, so anyway, once Purple Man walks out, the bank teller then freaks out, realizing, you know, why, why did I do that? Um, and then he's like, oh, he's probably a million miles away by now. Well, no. Purple Man's just sauntering down the street, all purple with his satchel full of cash. He lets the cops take him in and lets himself get arraigned in front of a judge. He insists that he doesn't need a lawyer, but the judge insists that he get a lawyer. And so, of course, a call goes out to Nelson and Murdoch. Foggy, as usual, is like, no, 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 we don't want to take any uh, cases from gummy criminals. And Matt is just like, oh, okay, you don't want to do it? I'll do it. Meanwhile, he brings Karen with him to take notes uh, to go meet the guy in the jail. Foggy thinks it's a bad idea. Um, and they get into the jail cell, and there's the purple man, once again, with this very distinctive-looking face, and he convinces the guard to just let him out and convinces Karen to just walk out with him willingly. Yes, unfortunately, uh, he has taken an interest in Karen, which uh, so yes. Matt has, uh, but should not have brought her into this situation because yeah. he is now smitten with Karen, and of course he can have her instantly. Yes, and Foggy uh, Foggy was right, because Foggy was saying, hey, it's kind of dangerous to take her into this jail. Are you sure you want to do that? And indeed, something went horribly wrong. So uh, Daredevil, of course, possibly because he doesn't have his sense of sight, or possibly just because he has a strong will. It's a little bit unclear, but one way or the other, he is able to resist the powers of the Purple Man. He sort of feels them pulling at him but he's able to uh, resist it. So he goes and he finds the Purple Man and Karen, and he's trying to rescue her, but then the Purple Man just basically tells the whole crowd around them on the New York City street, hey, he's your enemy. Go basically murder him. And so then everybody just piles on Daredevil, and uh, while, he, while Purple Man runs off with Karen. So Daredevil then jumps up over the crowd and uh, into a tree, and actually kind of a nice little sequence here. Uh, yeah. with Joe Orlando really thinking through how he gets up to the tree and you can kind of see him moving from spot to spot. Uh, and I, I will I will definitely give him that. He did that well. Uh, and here is where his little backpack slash cape thing gets ripped off by the frantic crowd. Uh, and so we never see it again. My question yeah. is, is his suit and <laughs> is his whole suit and shoes and stuff like that now in their hands? And would that include his wallet? Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh. Let's hope he kept his wallet in his back pocket. Yes, he says, I realize now it's too dangerous to keep my street suit hidden in that hood. It's too easy for an enemy to grab, to slow me up. So yes, they I they actually felt the need to write out the silly little hood. So he has to come back to the office now and tell Foggy that, oh yeah, you know how you were saying it wasn't a good idea for me to bring Karen because it might be dangerous? Well, the <laughs> bad guy escaped and he now has Karen. So, yeah, I guess you were right. So, next we see Purple Man walking into sort of sort of just a um, meathead weightlifter boxer type gym. Purple Man just walks on in there and he's like, okay, you guys are now my army. Come on with me. They then all fall in line. He uses all this, you know, both his hypnotism powers or whatever you call it and his muscle here to go ahead and get the hotel to give him the entire top penthouse floor 
evicting all of the swells that are staying there and they are not having it. Um, but, you know, what are you going to do? You've got this guy who can convince anybody of anything and he's got a whole bunch of muscle-bound clods here to do his bidding. We then see Daredevil doing some super science, which once again is, you know, it's amazing how many people have super science abilities in this world. Builds a little tape recorder into his billy club and then we see him doing something else that seems a little bit weird. He says, perfect, this chemically treated plastic sheet snaps open and closed with my cane by means of a taut spring like a modified window shade. And you see a picture of it, and it's just this whole big white sheet just sort of accordionating out of the thing as it's being, uh, you know, spit out. And it's like, what's going on there? He basically at the end is like, I want to wrap up the purple man in plastic to keep his powers from working. And it's like, dude, just get a plastic garbage bag and lower it over his head. And it's like, that is all you need to do to wrap somebody up in plastic. You do not need to set up a window shade type thing hidden within your wooden cane and chemically treat some plastic like where is he getting this chemical to chemically treat like that's a lot of work chemically treating a whole roll of plastic and then rolling it up so tightly it fits inside your wooden cane like that is a lot of work dude just bring a hefty garbage bag and put it over his head hey well like i said it's amazing who can do super science in this world because you know there, yes. there's gonna be an issue of the avengers in a few months where after uh hawkeye has joined where he's inventing a new type of arrow that is anti-gravity so it hits something <laughs> and stuff is suddenly anti-grav. And it's like, I don't think he's that level of scientist. <laughs> no. So we see some nice pictures of him once again going across the city. Uh, and so, some things that were probably very nice cityscapes when Joe Orlando drew them that Vince Coletta just did his usual kind of thing with backgrounds on, uh, particularly on page 14. Oh, yeah. there's a really weird shot on the bottom of page 14 with uh, Daredevil's shadow being cast across the city. And something about the angles on that just don't work for me at all, no. even as they were probably originally penciled, but uh, made even worse by the way that they were handled by the inking. All right, so uh, Daredevil finally, he figures out where the Purple Man is. He figures out because it says, once having stood near the Purple Man, Daredevil's razor-sharp senses could identify his voice, his pulse rate, his footsteps, the odor of his hair tonic from among millions of others. So he <laughs> sniffs him out. Yes, yes, yes. We also get the information that Daredevil actually has an internal compass that he can tell where North is by sensing the, the magnetic pull of the pole. So yes. <laughs> kind of like birds that way. He crashes in. So Daredevil crashes in on Purple Man's whole lair with his goons. Daredevil makes relatively quick work of the guys uh, in a lackluster fight sequence here. And at one point, he takes his billy club and does something with it to turn it into a right angle. And then he's able to use it as a boomerang, which is, uh, okay, sure, why not? Um, yeah, not how boomerangs work. And continual pet peeve of mine in comics. He turns it into a, he turns this club into a boomerang, throws it to the bad guy, it knocks the bad guy's gun out of his hand, and then it continues to loop around on its arc and comes back to Daredevil's hands. That is not how boomerangs work. The idea of a boomerang is not that you throw the boomerang. It hits somebody and then it loops around back to you. Like once it's hit something, it has lost its momentum. The momentum, once anything hits anything, 
it stops having momentum. This is why I say that Captain America should always have his glove magnets because once something, once you throw something that hits something else, it is not going to come back to you. Okay, so two things. One, the, I think it is well established in cartoons that that is how boomerangs work in cartoon logic. <laughs> Right. I mean, yes. I mean, honestly, that that's something where I'm like, OK, I was already convinced at a very, very young age to suspend my disbelief. on that, right? <laughs> <But> then... <laughs> I am I am 47 and I have not gotten to that point yet. I have <laughs> at I at age 47, I am still not yet convinced of the logic of boomerangs returning to you after they hit somebody. Yes. But then uh, when it comes to Captain America's shield, I will point out that later after all this stuff, after they take the magnets out, they establish that his. Uh, shield is at least partially vibranium and the vibranium has special uh, characteristics that allow it to keep almost all of its momentum whenever it bounces off anything. But that should be the opposite because they say that it's especially good at deflecting bullets because the vibranium uh, stops all of the momentum, you know, sucks all the momentum out of the bullets. So if this is a special momentum dampening shield, then it should be even less likely to bounce back to him than any other shield should. Right. Daredevil takes care of all the muscle bound goons. Purple Man is trying to run off with Karen. Daredevil throws his billy club in and jams the elevator door open in a way that just does not make any visual sense to me whatsoever about how that works but no <laughs> what are you gonna do the purple man is going to make karen jump off the edge of a building unless daredevil does his bidding i gotta say a really nice sequence the top of page 18 these are my two favorite panels in the issue you can see sort of the wind whipping through karen's dress as she stands with her toes over the precipice on the edge of the building and first panel, we're looking way down at the street and you can see the people like ants below her. And the next panel, we're looking up at her and we can see the clouds moving through the sky above her. And real sense in both of these that this is someone who is in a lot of danger. And I really yeah. like these panels a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And once again, you know, wanting to give credit where credit is due on Coletta. Yes, most of his stuff here is terrible, but I really like the texture and pattern he puts on her dress. The best of Coletta right there. And then yeah. the, that you'll see from him uh, overall, some of his textures and stuff like that. And I, I'm pretty sure if I recall correctly, there was a scene in the Jessica Jones first season that was very, very much like this, except instead of Karen, who did exist in that same sort of suite of shows, it was Jessica. So very, very affecting thing. And they uh, quote it later in uh, the TV shows. Daredevil is going to allow Purple Man to shoot him in order to save Karen. But then he says, oh, but before you kill me, what is your power and how did you obtain it? And Purple Man, being an idiot villain, goes ahead and decides to tell him his whole story. And he says that he is a spy for another country. He snuck into an army ordnance depot to try and get some sort of stuff in the army ordnance depot. Very similar to the Joker in Batman comics, he ends up getting a whole vat of chemicals. In this case, dumped on him rather than uh, falling into it. But this was a purple nerve gas that dyed his entire body and gave him this power, which he figured out about pretty quickly. And then Daredevil says, ha ha, I have a spy type tape recorder in my billy club. And so now you're 
gonna be guilty <laughs> and there's just a really weird look on a uh, purple man's face as uh, as this is revealed so at this point daredevil is able to grab karen away from the purple man and run off with her the purple man once again gets a whole mob of new yorkers to attack daredevil but then daredevil uses that chemically treated spring-loaded plastic sheet thingy, which I guess was in there when he turned it into a boomerang. And that that would have been awkward. But anyway, he uses it and covers up the purple man, basically smothers the purple man in plastic. Uh, And, you know, I was thinking, hmm, so he's smothered in a plastic sheet. I guess he's just going to suffocate and die now. Uh, But apparently, you know, if he's covered up, then whether this is the purple color or something about, you know, pheromones he gives off or whatever else, uh, he can no longer affect the crowd. So everybody comes out of it um, while they meanwhile tie ropes tightly around the purple man so that the plastic is very snug around his entire upper body and head. And once again, I'm like, eh, OK, so um, yeah, we're just going to suffocate. In the end, Foggy forgives Matt for putting Karen in danger. They're all just happy to be together. But Matt realizes how much Foggy actually cares for Karen. That just heightens the whole love triangle thing going forward. Yeah, so it's sort of an emotional love triangle now where where Matt's like, okay, he's sort of going to step back and let Foggy have Karen, you know, uh, making it clear that Karen has absolutely no vote in any of this. (laughs) Yeah, no agency whatsoever. Yeah, (laughs) of course not. Overall, I think this is probably the strongest of the Joe Orlando Daredevil issues. Yeah, Um, I would definitely say so. Yeah. uh, And, you know, like I said, there were some really good action shots of Daredevil, some not very good action shots as well, but some very good action shots. Uh, Coletta was doing pretty much the best we're going to see Coletta do during the 60s, which, you know, still there are some terrible, (laughs) terrible panels in here. Like I said, there's probably uh, that one of the one or two of those cityscapes probably looked magnificent before he got his hands on him. But he does some great stuff with Karen, with her face, with her hair, with her dress. Uh, And once again, since we're going to be ragging on him a lot over the next indefinite period, uh, I want to give credit where credit is due. Seemingly, Coletta owns no brush. And you get like, you know, when Daredevil's huge shadow is draped across the city, like it seems to be inked with pen. And like, why would you ink, like you're doing somebody's shadow Like, why would you ink that with a pen? Why can't you ink that with a brush? Why are you scratching in a shadow? Like, I guess, I guess because you don't want to put down your tool and move to another tool. (laughs) I guess so. He does use a brush from time to time, but it's always seems a little bit ill advised. It's like, you know, oh, all this stuff looks scratchy, except for this one contour line that's way too thick. (laughs) But you know what? Remember, Jim Shooter told me that I should look to Vince Coletta specifically because of how he handled spotting blacks in that they weren't necessarily always solid black, that he found ways to break up the sections of black. You had mentioned before that Jim Shooter had told you to ink more like Vince, but you had not said that was exactly why he wanted you to do it. That's interesting. Yeah, it, it was a uh, it was a dark warehouse scene that I had inked. And so there was a lot of just big black areas uh, in there. And, you know, he kind of had a point. It's just that his example was just sort of like, I have to go now before I start <laughs> laughing because, you know, I mean, I, Jim Shooter did a lot for my for my youth. So I don't want to, you know, <laughs> but uh, also I will point out that Foggy was wearing a pink suit throughout this issue. Yes. Anyway, that's it. Um, OK, so let's go ahead and jump on to Fantastic Four number 31. So this is the third appearance of the Mole Man. I don't know if 
he is, you know, he was the very first Fantastic Four villain. He was one of the first ones to return. And now I think he is, you know, Doctor Doom has, uh, has been here several times, but Mole Man is one of the only other people to appear three times. I'm not sure he can actually do this. This turns out to be a very similar issue to his first two appearances. But we begin with something that, if there's one thing I knew about New York City long before I ever went there because of reading Marvel Comics, is that they don't have earthquakes in New York City because frequently in Marvel Comics, everything will suddenly start shaking in New York City and they'll be like, it can't be an earthquake. We don't have earthquakes here in New York City because we're on an, we're on bedrock that's what they always say like we're we're built on a firm bed of bedrock and so we can't have earthquakes here in new york city but then it keeps happening things keep shaking i should say when i later lived in new york city there was one time there was an earthquake and the whole building i was in when i was working at scholastic as a copywriter started to shake and it turned out there had actually been an earthquake in virginia oh yeah no i felt that because i'm closer to that than you are and it was like it was really strange because like nobody died anywhere in the country this was such a heavy earthquake that it shook buildings in new york city to the extent that we all felt it sitting under our desk and yet it wasn't there was no epicenter where there was a massive earthquake it was a very strange earthquake so once again everything is shaking now i gotta say this is in some ways the worst ever month for marvel comics in that it's the worst ever month for marvel comics in terms of centering the coloring because in so many books this month, the coloring is off center. It, the coloring does not line up with the black lines on the page. Oh, and really? You are not going to experience this because you are reading the recolored versions of these comics on Marvel Unlimited. I am reading scans of the original pages, and it is an absolute disaster in several books this month, including in this book. So hmm. then I'm, I'm suffering through this here. They decide, hey, everything's shaken. We should go check it out. But then Sue's like, wait, look at that newspaper. Daring escape from state prison, escaped fugitive. And she's like, oh, no, wait, you guys go off without me. I'm going to keep reading this newspaper and get very sad. And they're like, uh, okay, whatever that was. And then they go off uncharacteristically poorly drawn Kirby page on okay, page thank four. you. <laughs> I was going to jump in and talk about that. Yes, it is uncharacteristically poorly done. And I don't know how much to blame Jack Kirby and how much to blame Chick Stone. But one way or the other, Jack Kirby and Chick Stone usually do great together. But here, something went horribly awry. Well, also blame Stan Lee to a certain extent, because it's an inherently ridiculous thing to draw. Uh, you're drawing a New York City block where the entire city block has sunk down into the ground, which, again, it's sort of a repeat. This is not that different from what Woman was doing the first two times he appeared. And once again, he's lowering city blocks into the ground. And like that's a tall order for Stan Lee to ask Jack Kirby to draw that. But Jack Kirby just does not draw it well. This, you know, if there wasn't text here explaining that a city block had dropped into the ground, it wouldn't be at all clear from looking at this. And even the poor colorist is having, the uncredited colorist is having a hard time making it clear what's going on here. Well, and and let me just point out that when I talk about Chick Stone having some some culpability in this, um, and once again, let me just go and say that I would not, I am not saying I would have done a better job. Mine might very well have ended up looking just like this. <laughs> but the, the fact that he's got those completely black shadows on the road where the block still exists and yeah. then very light there where the, it, it, that just creates some weird tangents and you can't really tell that that's a sidewalk and it looks more like a big pole. And yeah, it's just um, Chick, Chick Stone could have done a lot to alleviate the design problems on here and he did not do it yeah it's a it's a shame but so then they go ahead and investigate the big hole in the ground they find out but once again like the last time there were big holes in the ground it's the moment and they're figuring out what's going on they meanwhile go back to the baxter building and they find that sue has 
disappeared. She has left a note behind saying that she's gone to the police. And then suddenly they find out the mole man has been sucking blocks into the ground, including, oh no, he stuck out the block where the police station is. Seemingly, by coincidence, I don't yes. think he realized that he was going to grab the invisible woman this way, invisible girl this way, but he quickly figures out he has, and he's glad to have done it. And they, she tries turning invisible, but of course, moments, moloids are virtually blind. and They are just relying on other senses. So then he contacts Fantastic Four so many, like Stanley has gotten just entirely too addicted to having the female members of the team get taken hostage. It just yes. happens over and over again in every book with every book, every month, the female members get taken hostage. It's getting really tiresome. Reed, Johnny, and Ben go flying over there in their jet this time, try to fly into the hole in the ground. Well, it's the pogo plane. And yeah, it looks like a jet, but apparently it's got some kind of propeller on the nose as well that allows them to lower themselves vertically down this shaft. So yeah. I don't think we see a propeller on the end of the pogo plane in most cases, but we did here, and that just jumped out at me. So then the moment attacks them with all sorts of devices, and then in a nicely drawn sequence uh, by Kirby. And so then they finally confront the moment. He's like, well, I've got Sue, and I want you to not attack me, and I want you to keep anyone else from attacking me too, or else I won't hurt Sue. So then, sure enough, he sends them back to the surface. The Avengers are there. The Avengers are like, we'll rescue Sue. And they're like, no, we're going to fight you to keep you from rescuing Sue because she is being held hostage. Give us 24 hours. You can try to rescue Sue after 24 hours. First, give us some time to do it. And the Avengers are like, okay. And then they come up with a cover plan where Johnny just burns a hole straight down through the ground to where Sue is. And they've got this neat little flying helicopter thing to go down and follow after him. Sure enough, they free Sue. They get in a big fight with the Mole Man and the Mole Woods. So I cannot tell you how utterly distracting the off-center coloring is. And then they finally defeat the Mole Man, send him running, but he has harmed Sue in the process. Of course, they, once again, as with in previous appearances of the woman he <laughs> restores the city box back to where he took them from and they instantly seal themselves back in place which is yes. always utterly ridiculous meanwhile they rush sue to the hospital and turns out she's in serious condition she's could die and they're like oh what can we do and it's like there's only one doctor who can save her but he's a fugitive from justice he can't possibly be here and then he shows up he says yes i the doctor who is a fugitive from justice i will save her and at which point Johnny says, you, but but all these years, Sue told me you were dead. Dad, oh, dad, you're back. And uh, this turns out to be Sue and Johnny's dad has been in jail this whole time. This is unexplained, has now escaped from jail. But when he realized his daughter was in medical danger, he goes ahead and comes back, performs the operation, and agrees to be arrested again and sent to jail just to save her. So this is all completely unexplained. So this is all left for next issue to explain why on earth Johnny and Sue's dad has been in prison all this time and what is going on. But I think it's kind of fun. I think this is kind of a fun twist to have in this issue. We've got, as the Fantastic Four is finishing out its third year, they are trying to sort of add some richness to the characters they haven't had. Giving Johnny and Sue a criminal father is a nice, you know, like I said, I always liked it when Betty Brand had to deal with her criminal family members. And I'm a, I'm, generally pro-criminal family member, and <laughs> I like this element here. Uh, yeah, I, I I very much enjoy this too. You know, they've just always sort of had un, un, completely unexamined why 
you know, Sue and Johnny are this big sister and little brother who are living on their own, you know, Johnny, a teenager and Sue, presumably in her like, you know, early 20s, or maybe even younger, I don't know, just living by themselves in a New York suburb. What's going on? Well, now we finally found out what's going on. This is probably their old childhood home that they were left in when dad was arrested. Uh, I don't know if we ever still find out what happened to their mom, but you know. um, No, not really. Yeah, no. That's one thing I found is that um, storytellers always seem to have lots of love for distant fathers who you who you make up with and not so much so with mothers. Right. <laughs> One thing I really like about this is that the Avengers actually show up to do something about this. <laughs> uh, you know, too often it's just, you know, some big massive thing happens to New York and one particular superhero or team uh, is all over it. And you never hear about any of the other ones showing up <laughs> anywhere. Yeah, so that, that, that's very nice. I, I very much like that. So good issue. That's about, I think, all I have to say. Yeah, so we're ending on a cliffhanger here. We're going to find out more about what's going on. It says a strange ending for a Fantastic Four tale, perhaps. But then life itself is full of strange, unexpected events, as we shall learn next issue. So please join us when all is said and done. I'm not sure he even knew for certain he was ever going to reveal what was going on here. But as it turns out, this dad's storyline very much does continue to the next issue so we will get to that so we're now moving on to journey into mystery with the mighty thor featuring the menace of magneto the most powerful of the evil mutants so this is once again as you were talking about them just starting to recombine various elements they've already set up in the past and i'm intrigued when i see this i'm like hmm Thor versus Magneto. How is this going to work? It's a very natural combination. They have not gotten much use out of Magneto yet as a great potential villain for other people as well. I think this is very clever. And of course, they always have a hard time coming up with good villains for Thor who aren't Asgardian when, you know, they probably should just always stick to Asgardian villains. But if you're trying to find good non-Asgardian villains for Thor, this is a very clever use of their existing IP. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And certainly much better than, you know, Cobra. (laughs) <laughs> yes cobra is just always going to be my go-to just like ugh, cobra so uh it looks like at the new york world's fair they're going to have a hall of heroes and they are showing their thor statue that they're going to have to thor to get his approval on it uh one thing i noticed is that jack kirby seems to have really thought through how the spinning hammer is going to be represented in a still statue. Not that it necessarily makes much sense, but you can tell that there was some thought that went into that, which yeah, uh, I find. and it's very artistic and cool. Yeah. Kirby's like, oh, that'd be a neat way to sculpt this particular statue. Yeah, so I give him a lot of credit for that. Thor then heads back out and really fantastic looking panel, panel number three on page two, I guess it is. What it does, it, it reminds me of like, Neil Adams or something like that. Something about the position of the figure drawing of Thor there looks like the kinds of comics art I'm going to be expecting to see 10 years from now. Yeah, Um, it's a very dynamic panel. It's great. Uh, So anyway, we then see that Magneto's got some kind of a junker uh, undersea ship. The top of it looks like some uh, rotted driftwood. And so that allows him to move around and not have to worry about ripples and all that sort of stuff. But it really doesn't look like driftwood. It looks like it's just a submarine with a massive, gnarled, rotten tree growing out of the top of it. And the the idea seems to be like, all right, first of all, if you've got a submarine, it's very easy to be 
quiet and sneak around with a submarine because the submarine is under the water. If you want to hide in a submarine, then just be in a submarine and right away you're beneath the water, you're hidden. And then they're like, no, 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 people, we're going to look too suspicious puttering around under the water here in our submarine. We've got to go ahead and camouflage ourselves by attaching a giant tree to the top of the submarine. And it's like that way people will look out of the water and see this massive tree moving around in the water. And that way they're going to go like, oh, okay, I was suspicious for a second. Now that I see there's a massive tree moving around, I am not suspicious at all. And I guess there is the idea of driftwood. Occasionally you will find wood drifting around in the ocean, but not like this, not like a big <laughs> tree standing up that right. is moving yeah. around. The, the verticality uh, really does <laughs> sort of ruin the whole, uh, the whole idea. Anyway, so yes. Magneto puts the rest of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants into a little um, smaller undersea craft to send them into New York City. Magneto stays behind, and he, of course, has a big magnet-shaped <laughs> little yes, big shaped magnet. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and he says, now I shall experiment with my matchless magnetic powers. Yeah. Like, why on earth are you doing this right now? As, you know, he's right. so oddly, they're still looking for the X Men. They can't figure out that the X Men are in the phone book as running a school in Westchester, New York. <laughs> they are looking for them in New York City. And apparently, the X Men are in New York City. I don't know why they'd be there. They don't normally live or operate there. But so then he then figures he's like oh we finally found them what we've been searching for for months we found the x-men i'm gonna send the brotherhood in a little four-person submarine that shoots out of the bigger submarine off to go find them in the city it's such an important day for me this is so exciting but while they're doing that i'm gonna go ahead and experiment with my powers and just start throwing cars around in downtown manhattan just to experiment with my powers and attract the attention of superheroes to me while this very important operation is going down I'm not sure this is the best use of your time, Magneto. I'm not sure this is good time management. No. Uh, so, yes, but we do get some really fantastic shots of everything going topsy-turvy in New York City. It is fantastic. Especially the uh, third and final panel on page five, a huge panel with a car floating up above a crowd. Uh, you see a sign for a seafood restaurant uh, just floating around with the iron you know, bars that have been holding it in place, just sort of hanging loose from it. Uh, motorcycle drifting up with a guy trying to hold on to his motorcycle. <laughs> just fantastic looking stuff there. Don Blake was working on a patient when all of this happened. Once the patient leaves, he's like, oh, okay, yeah, I need to get out of here real fast. Jane's like, what about our date? He's like, oh, <laughs> right um yeah sorry baby uh we'll have to do that some other time and she is not happy thor then heads out to try and figure out what's going on he finds the 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 camouflage right away it's just like (laughs) hey that's clearly something that's not supposed to be there (laughs) so he goes up and finds the uh the hatch on top of it yeah, so he uses his hammer as he able to follow the lines of magnetic force, and it leads him to, says it's leading me irresistibly towards that large piece of floating driftwood. There must be far more to it than meets the eye. Like, yes, everybody, anyone can look at this and figure out what's going on, Magneto. Like, all you had to do was just have no tree on top of your submarine. Yes. Uh, so, um, so Thor confronts him. He's like, you know, what are you doing? I'm Thor of Asgard, and... Magneto basically says, well, I'm Magneto, most powerful of homo superior. <laughs> so so take that for your whole Asgard thing. We see that, that Magneto has all sorts of uh, treasures and art 
here in his submarine. Yes. Really, do you have to have your bags of gold and your statues and your paintings with you in the submarine? That doesn't seem to make much sense. Seemingly a painting of Shakespeare that he has carried around with him and uh, an armless <laughs> Venus de Milo type statue. And it's like, yeah, this has been shown as being a pretty already seems like a pretty tight submarine to be carrying around five people in. The submarine doesn't look that much bigger than the tree that is growing out of the roof of it. Yes, but he's got a treasure room on the submarine. So, and and where, and why would Magneto have paintings and statues of Homo sapiens? Exactly. <laughs> okay. So then Magneto starts ripping up his own submarine to wrap Thor up in metal, which once again, seems a little ill-advised. Uh, Thor throws his hammer, but of course, his hammer is Uru, which they say is a metal, even though it always looks like it's drawn as though it's stone. So Magneto can start controlling the hammer. A little unclear on that. They're not exactly, it doesn't seem like he can actually control it the way he would like a normal steel hammer, or if he had complete magnetic control over it, he doesn't seem to have that because they show him like nothing can get past my magnetic repeller field. So like he's setting up like a little waves of force to hold it back more so than actually controlling the metal in it. Magneto and Thor are then in just hand-to-hand combat until Magneto has some sort of, you know, once again, a big room with huge solid steel walls that are coming in on Thor. Again, you know, small submarine here. (laughs) Don't know if that's really the best use of your space and your mass there to uh, have all that solid steel. So at this point, Thor has been apart from his hammer for a little bit. And as soon as he is locked in this door, he turns back into Don Blake. Always very convenient when he turns back into Don Blake is always when no one happens to be looking at him. There's a really great shot of uh, Magneto pulling all the rivets out of the steel walls and using them like bullets to try and kill Thor, who in this case is Don Blake. And then Don Blake is like, oh, you know what I should do? I should go through that wall that I ripped open when I was Thor. And it's like, wait, you just now thinking of this? Like, (laughs) That was already ripped open before you were, quote, locked into this room. (laughs) What? Uh, Anyway, so. (laughs) Wait, I haven't a chance. I'll wait. There's one place back to the inner chamber through the wall, which Thor had opened. Uh, Exactly. That should have been your first thought. Don Blake is trying to get back and find his walking stick. Magneto has all sorts of death traps going on trying to get Thor. Don Blake with his. Uh, disabled leg is trying to avoid all these things and improbably doing so. Brotherhood of Evil Mutants then say, hey, uh, we found the X-Men and uh, I think we really need you here for this. And Magneto's like, oh, I'm busy. Brotherhood of Evil Mutants are clearly getting their butts handed to them here. Uh, although we only really see that peripherally <laughs> as this is yeah, going Yeah, it's an on. interesting sort of conceit of the issue that they're having a fight with the X-Men, but we keep not seeing the X-Men. We see their shadows or we see Cyclopses force beam, but we don't actually, we never actually see the X-Men in this issue, which is sort of a visual conceit that Kirby is having fun with. Don Blake finds his walking stick again. uh, And of course, he's from, you know, just right around the corner where Magneto sees this mysterious hand come out and grab the walking stick. And then he turns into Thor. And, you know, I guess in this case, he hadn't seen Don Blake. So I guess that wouldn't, you know, yeah, okay. I'll give that one a pass. I know often that's a problem. Thor comes after him with his hammer. He's able to escape down through the floor. So Thor then sees out the porthole window. He sees this X-Men branded sub leaving uh, after their battle. So the whole fact that once again, the X-Men, the super secret team, puts a big X on everything (laughs) they do. Also, you know, where does their submarine dock? 
you have to wonder that. I, I I've never I, I don't think I've ever seen their submarines before or after this either. I'm not I'm not no. sure. The X Men were seemingly just out and about in New York City when the Brotherhood found them in New York City, somewhere presumably on the streets of New York City, and got into a fight with them and then the Brotherhood gets away in a submarine and the X-Men have their own submarine, their own little X submarine to chase after them. Like <laughs> you just yeah. also happen to have a submarine in the city this day. What, um, yeah. how you knew you were going to get the submarine battle at one point. It's, and, uh, and it's a little both unclear. Of you, both of you seem to be based in Westchester County. And <laughs> you some, yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of silly. So then Magneto, I think he just abandons, doesn't he? Brotherhood of evil mutants here and heads off in his submarine. Yeah. Yeah. He just leaves them. Because, you know, he doesn't care. So uh, then Don Blake shows back up and making all nicey-nice with Jane, who is apparently shows up at her home and then she makes him some dinner. Uh, so it's always, you know, always a little bit unclear how intimate these relationships are, which I mean, when oh, you're yeah. writing these for when you're writing these for, you know, eight to 10 year old kids, which I think was their uh, idea for the most part, um, you know, you don't want or need to get too specific about that you know you kind of wanted want to leave it kind of vague but yeah and this sort of thing it's like oh yeah i'm showing up at your place and there you are lying down on your couch reading a book you know in a sort of a provocative not provocative but you know in sort of a sexy looking position uh and then you know she's wearing these you know modern 60s looking women's trousers in her modern 60s uh kitchen and making him some food and it's yeah it just does come across as like you know, especially in the 60s, in the early 60s, I guess. I think we were still at the point where a woman would just not allow a man in her home unsupervised, like unchaperoned, unless they were having a sexual relationship. And they were just sort of like, oh, yeah, no, we're adults and we're, you know, just doing whatever. But, yeah. um, you know, the whole idea that you would let a man, even a man you know and trust in without a chaperone sort of implies that they uh, that they are already having a close romantic relationship, even though I don't think they are. Yeah. All right. We're going to move on to Tales from Asgard. Anything that you want to say about the first story before we do so? I think that this story is good. I think it is good to bring this very powerful Marvel hero Thor together with this very powerful Marvel villain Magneto, where he does have a metal instrument, although they're never clear on whether or not Magneto can affect the mental instrument. I think this is an excellent issue. Beautifully drawn by Kirby, beautifully inked by Chick Stone. An excellent first half of the book, and then we get the second half of the book, inked by Coletta. Womp womp. Yes. Uh, so, the splash page of this story, Odin is banishing Thor from Asgard. For daring to fight a duel against my wishes, you must accept my punishment. Even the son of Odin may not disobey an imperial command. And so I order you to be banished from Asgard. So, and they, they make it clear that this is when Thor was not yet 20. So, yes, one of the things I'm wondering about that is like, so is this sort of like with dog years where, you know, you're translating this into human terms or do they literally get, do Asgardians literally get this old and mature looking by the age of 20 and then they just stay that way for the next several hundred years? I don't know. Yes. <laughs> so anyway, he's being banished. People are saying, oh, you know, th this seems extreme. And he's like, nope, don't talk to me about it. I'm Odin. What I say goes. So then meanwhile, we see some guy looks kind of like Loki, but he's not. He's someone named Arkin the Weak. You know, you just know that he's not he's not your hero there if he's the weak. Uh, but he apparently has the hots 
for um what is her name it says long have i loved Kenorda, normal sized queen of the mountain giants but long has she spurned my heart yes um so yeah so i don't know whether when they say normal sized queen of the mountain giants if that means that she is not herself a mountain giant but has somehow become their queen or whether some giants just happen to be human size and they still allow them respect i don't know but one way or the other, he goes and says, okay, well, I've had the hots for uh, Knorda, the queen of the mountain giants, for a while. This will allow me to get in her good graces. So he goes to her and tells her, hey, Thor has just been banished. That means Asgard is weaker than they should be. If you go take care of Thor out here while he's on his own, then you can have an advantage over Asgard. There's a really nice panel on page three where we see Thor on his horse walking in the distance and there's a really interesting little sort of like millipede looking thing in the foreground which uh, yeah, you know, that, yeah that kind of imaginative stuff is always great of course the uh the horse looks like all of its life was drained out of it by coletta unfortunately so yes. uh thor is then attacked by all of these mountain giants the perspective is a little bit weird because knorda looks like exactly the same size as the mountain giants there as far as i can tell I guess the giants are riding giant horses because yes. Thor's horses in the foreground and it's smaller than the horses that are in the background. But I guess that's because giants have giant horses. Uh, that's my understanding. Thor ends up going into what looks like a dead end box canyon. Uh, but then there's a little crevasse where he is able to fit in and the storm, uh, sorry, the mountain giants are not because they are giant. So then he climbs up through this crevasse and it turns out that he was never actually banished. This was all a ruse so that they could go ahead and flush out this spy amongst them. And now the mountain giants, including Knorda and um, what's his name? Arkin the Weak are all just trapped in this box canyon now. And they just leave them there because, you know, good. We don't have to worry about them anymore. Knorda folds like a, what do they say? Folds like a what? A uh, wet like, napkin? I don't know. No? Folds like a something. And she says, well, poor Arkin is like, Knorda, I did not realize I could not suspect it was all a trap staged by Orden. Knorda, you must listen. And she says, silence, weak one. We have no more to say to each other ever again, except my sword, Odin. I acknowledge my defeat and beg that you be generous in victory. So the whole thing is right. wrapped up satisfactorily. Right, right, right. Yeah. So I guess they don't just leave them to uh, to starve in the uh, in the box canyon. They actually just basically accept their surrender. Thank you. Um, so anyway, uh, I I like this story. Uh, this is a fun uh, adventure tale with a nice little twist. Um, and you know, it seems like a kind of thing they've done in Tales of Asgard before, but it doesn't feel too formulaic or anything like that at this point. It it seems, uh, yeah, I like it. This is an excellent story. It's really beautifully turned by Kirby, ter terribly inked by Colada, but unlike a lot of Tales of Asgard stories, has a satisfactory beginning, middle, and end, and feels like a really fun five-page addition to this issue. Yep. All told, an excellent issue of Thor, excellent front half of the book, excellent second half of the book, except for the inking, and two really enjoyable stories. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, which, you know, we don't always get with Thor. So um, no. uh, so it's it's nice to see. All right, so now we are going to head on, I believe. To... Wait, oh, wait, I'm sorry. let's yes. go and wrap up that episode. So, oh, right. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, everybody, that was the first four books from October 1964. So we will go ahead and wrap that up and... 
go ahead and we'll keep recording tonight and record the next four issues of October 1964. But we will be done here. So thanks, everybody, for listening. And we will see you shortly. Yes, absolutely. Thank you, everybody. All right. Bye. Thanks for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Your reviews and ratings are a great help and always appreciated. We love hearing from you. Go to MarvelRereadClub.com to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. See you next time.